Hello, hello. Hey up, what's up, what's good? Que cosa sucede? Ni hao, priviet. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, intellectual, and artistic people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. We have an outstanding show for today with, with a motivating guest. Author Jack Kelly joins the show. Boston native Jack Kelly is an author, public speaker, and marathon runner who overcame heroin addiction in his early 20s. Through his critically acclaimed memoir, Sharp Needle, and his inspiring and quite candid speaking engagements, Jack is changing the conversation about life after addiction. Jack remains a vocal leader on issues surrounding addiction and recovery. He holds a political science degree from the University of Massachusetts at Boston. He's an avid runner and completed the Boston Marathon and in 2018 successfully trekked to Mount Everest Base Camp in Nepal. I really enjoyed Jack's book, Sharp Needle. I found it refreshing because it was brutally honest. Oftentimes, when you're reading autobiographies, you can tell when the writer is not being sincere, or is not being true, or is perhaps pandering for a certain type of, of emotion. But my fondness for the book was anchored in the authenticity, in the fact that he wasn't afraid to talk about some of his worst moments. It's a dramatic tale of of recovery, but he doesn't pull any punches in showing on just how devastating addiction can be. On today's episode, Jack talks about the process of writing the book and how it was reflecting back on those tortuous experiences. Jack also reflects on his time in politics and what it taught him about himself. Finally, Jack shares what inspired him and helped him throughout his recovery journey. Uh, this was such a great conversation. Between reading the book and then chatting with him, I feel like I've known Jack for years. His story is unforgettable, but it's also important. It's important to hear about, and addiction needs to be discussed. And Jack is doing a fantastic job at being a leader in the world of addiction and recovery. Thrilled for everyone to meet him. So let's go ahead and bring on author, public speaker, and avid runner, Jack Kelly, and let's learn. First of all, what was the motivation behind writing Sharp Needle? It's a fantastic book, but what was your mindset in creating that? So Sharp Needle, for me was really a kind of a transformation in the sense of I had a couple different things. I had always felt the need to talk about that story in a more in-depth way than I felt I was allowed to. Mm -hmm. And I had run for a political office. And so because I ran for office, I was able to get some sort of local attention and using that particular issue with the opiate issue, which became this huge trendy topic to talk about unfortunately if we want to phrase it that way yeah. and so as a result i i kind of wanted my my voice to be decided more amplified how i was saying it as opposed to how other people were sort of speaking for me if that makes any sense and so i wrote it to kind of give my interpretation of what other people wanted to write about it so because i felt that my story was not getting portrayed the way i needed to be and in essence of the way people were talking about from political perspective with the opiate epidemic. I didn't like how myself and my biography was uh, advancing other agendas that I didn't agree with. So that's kind of the sort of reason for it at first. Yeah. yeah. You're controlling the narrative. And it's also one of those things, if people are going to criticize you, it's like, well, let me tell you the story from my first hand. During the process of the writing, was it difficult reflecting back on some of these memories or in some ways did it help? Uh, both. In, oh, for a while, it the first, as it got really graphic, it became, and you said you read the book, right? So yeah, as yeah. it became kind of the, <laughs> to, like when the needle enters the picture, I really had a hard time 
going there because I had to fail it. And so a lot of people have told me that enjoyed the book or didn't like it. As a writer, like you could probably understand this. I wanted them to feel something. I wasn't going to write a book about my addiction unless I could, I could completely be raw and honest, not just in words, but actually intention and let people feel that. And for people to feel that I had to refail it again. I'm not the same person that I was when I was talking about the first time I did that. Mm-hmm. So I, it's one thing to sit and have a conversation with somebody. When you write a book, I got to make them go to that car. Yeah. How do I do that? And I had to go there and it wasn't easy. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It had feelings that sort of brought things up inside of me that I didn't think existed. I thought I had been past a lot of stuff. And so mm-hmm. there was a little bit of a crash after that, ironically. And, but the great thing is I feel that I've moved on now in a different transition in my life and my story in my professional world is no longer that I used to just be a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. It's much more transformative and writing that book was owning my own story, getting comfortable with my truth and not having to cater to people of what they think of me. And I can also put that behind me. I don't have to just be that anymore. And that's been the most refreshing part of it. I like that. I like that. I can put that behind me. It's not just me anymore. That was part of me, but it doesn't define me. And I think that's great how you wrote that because if there wasn't an emotional detachment, it wouldn't have been authentic and you would have felt it. Oh. And it wouldn't have been as much of a, as a moving book. So sort of weird thing, like uh, off topic, but the, yeah. remember that book, A Million Little Pieces? I don't know. Oh, if yeah. You're yeah. around until you're my age or so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It came out and he was like getting interviewed on Oprah, which is like the ultimate thing to get yeah. to Oprah. And it came out, he lied. Yeah. And I was just like, so I'm writing that. I had this thing in my head. I'm like, it has to be a thousand percent. In fact, I made things almost less inflatable just so there was not any room that someone would say, he's lying. So <laughs> I had that in my head the whole time. So it's real, unfortunately. And it's so funny because that book was trending everywhere. Everywhere you went, so people were reading it. And then when it find out, well, that's not real, it, people lost interest immediately. Because it's like, who cares? It's a fiction book. Mm, it is thick and not a good one. <laughs> like, come on. So, yeah. I think many people would think there's a huge gulf between prescription drugs and street drugs, but it's actually, it's actually a really thin line. So how would you describe the comparison between the two? I think that in the context of this discussion, in any discussion when it comes to prescription drugs or substance abuse in, in general, I think that it's important we talk about a lot of variety of details. Mm-hmm. For example, like prescription drug use in my story doesn't happen without being the athlete that was able to get to a good doctor and then get that particular medicine and sure. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah, we're not, t- we're not talking aspirin. We're talking a little higher level. Yeah. Correct. But, and also to you, if we look back at it, there's an element of white privilege. And I don't really like that term, but growing up in the city of Boston, having the unique perspective I did, and then being in politics, I was able to really see that it was the football players and the hockey players like myself, that because we got access to good doctors, we were getting this experimental great pain medicine called Oxycontin, <laughs> all the rich little people. And we got hooked on it. And then we went and started doing heroin. And a lot, ironically, in the, like the city like of Boston and a lot of other major cities across the country, if you look in African-American communities, they didn't gratefully, for the most part, get hit by the opiate epidemic. Mm-hmm. We're able to avoid it, which, I mean, I, hate to, like, I mean, it's sort of systematic things that help them, I think, in a, in a way, which it's something that I've been able to really look at too. And so you look at that part, per, like point. So that's a specific thing of how I became hooked on heroin yeah. and then prescription medication. And so if you look at somebody who grew up in the 1970s, you're going to have a whole different way of how they did it. So yeah, it's a thin line, but I would say that as I grow the, the real more honest thing, it's about internally your mental health 
And whether you're doing illegal drugs, alcohol, prescription drugs, you can abuse anything. And it's yeah. more about being whole here. Mm -hmm. And so I've sort of gave up on that about, is it alcohol, real drugs, fake drugs? It's all drugs. Food is a drug. Mm -hmm. You know, people, more people abuse food in this country than any other drug. It's not even close. Yeah. Sugar is one of the most, I would say, responsible chemicals, substances, if you will, that comes out of the ground that has, since the 1940s, addicted America to points of diabetes. Human beings are not supposed to get diabetes. It's, a, it's, a little, it's an unnatural thing to happen, except for within 1% who have that DNA. Now we have an explosion of it. Yeah. Why? That's an addiction to sugar. Yeah. So, I mean, I think sometimes it's, it's really easy to focus on drugs, right? Because we can kind of say those bad drugs. And as a result, you have an experience like myself that creates a lot of pain and misery for people, right? And, and of course, myself. But if you really think about it deeper, it's more about that concept I talked about being whole because I could not do heroin and do eat bad for the rest of my life. And by the time I'm 50, I'm taking as much off of the healthcare system as someone who's doing drugs. Yeah. So it's weird. You know, it's kind of a, I've kind of come full circle on a lot of that. It's way deeper for me now. I respect that. And I think you've made great points about you know, anything can be abused. During your darkest times, did you ever feel a loss of hope for the future? Or were you not worried about the things long-term? Were you just worried about kind of the next day? Well, it depends. And mm -hmm. for the most part, it was day to day, minute to minute. But yeah, I had, there's a part in the book that I talked about where I was sitting at a bench at the Boston Common. That yeah. was, I referenced the scene in Good Will Hunting just to give people a kind of a- <laughs> Fantastic it, movie, one of my like, favorites. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's like, I wish my scene was the Robin Williams <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would come later though. I did get that scene. Yeah. Not today. But um, yeah, man, I, I, that is day to day stuff. But like that thing that I kind of captured that night was when I said I, I was done fighting. I wanted, I wanted it to end. The pain was too great. So yeah, I, I, I had been there. And, and not only in that particular point in my life, which I think is obvious, I think that it's more important for me to highlight that in my good life, the recovery life, where all things have been going good, I've had those moments. And I think that's more powerful, right? It's easy to sort of say, did you ever feel depressed talking to like a war veteran? Okay, well, fine. Yeah. I think it's much more um, impactful to say, I've been depressed when things were good. Yeah. Right? And I've had those moments, I don't want to do this, in recovery because I would hearken back to the hopelessness of those moments and say, if humanity can be this cruel, like, what's the point? You know? And so, but I always try to just eradicate that. I sit with it. I don't like get any shame with it, but I do all the stuff that I talked about. I exercise, I try to do good things and I try to speak my truth and, and be a, just do the next right thing, you know? And, and when I don't, just admit that I'm not perfect and try to say sorry and, and keep going forward and just do that stuff, you know? And that's how it works for me. It's how I get rid of those negative thoughts to keep moving, you know? I appreciate that you mentioned that it doesn't have to be a bad life for depression. Depression can be if you're having a great life. During recovery, when you decided that that was the route you wanted to go, what motivated you? Did you have anybody that were specific inspirations along the way? Um, it's a really twofold question. I mean, there are people in my life yeah. since I've been alive, right? Yeah, that yeah. Have, have meant a lot to me. And that as more people come into your life, those that expands and shrinks and et cetera. But um, I, I think the answer is yes, but no too, because it's the sort of cliche, like if I'm not 
doing it for myself. I mean, if you break your arm and someone offers you a ride to the hospital and you say, no, I can fix it myself. Right. And it stays broken. And then you say, why didn't you give me a ride to the hospital? It's, this is your fault. No, it's not. And I, and I think that for me, it's having it happen to me at such a young age and entering recovery at such a really young, harsh environment age and coming from a family that was really full and loving and to have that much of a downfall very quickly, I was able to sort of realize that in the end, the best way I can do things for people that I love is to do things for myself, love myself first. And then that part is easy. And I always, for a long time in recovery, I had it the other way. I was trying to get people to love me. And if they didn't or their expectations that I had to them didn't work out, I would be devastated. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of learning that once I could really love myself, I could be lonely. I could be unhappy without it being this gravitational type of like weight that I can't keep going on anymore. Yeah. And that's kind of the biggest thing I've learned in recovery. And, and in, in light of that, I'm able to openly love people I care about, you know. Mm-hmm. You've endured a lot in the recovery, and I'm curious about the days where you didn't see the end, but also where you didn't know what the end was in the sense of the, the, the doubt that was looming over you at all times of like, maybe you want to recover, but you didn't know how, and you also didn't know where the paths would lead, and just if it was going to work, if maybe all this you're doing for, was for no reason. So during all the uncertainty, all the doubt, how did you power through that? Hmm. <laughs> or how are you powering to that as well? That's no, still no, no, no. Great question. I, I haven't thought about that in a while. I, I don't, I, I now am at a point where I ask those questions that you're asking. I'm more intrigued by other people. Um, just people in my life. There are, almost everybody in my life that's important to me has been through their own journey. That inspires me. And those aren't tr- like traditional relationships of how they're supposed to be where it's like, you know, the brother or this person's the strong one on that one. I've, because of that journey, been able to look at all people in my life and really be trying to genuinely curious to see like the life through their eyes and how they're seeing it. Mm -hmm. I know that my life and how, what happened to me was not predictable. I mean, I had great parents and I was a good hockey player, that whole thing to think that in a couple of years I would have been shooting heroin under a bridge. I mean, come on, it makes no sense, but it happened. Mm -hmm. And then, this past year when I ran the Berlin marathon, I went to go see my grandfather who I was named after. And a lot of what you just asked came some clarity to it. I was able to stand there at a German prison, prison of war camp. Okay. And again, they don't do it like we do it. Okay. So they don't celebrate that stuff. Remember they are ashamed of world war two. And the reason I tell you that is because the memorials that are built are all stuff that we made them build. So they're not, they're not, they're hidden. They're really not like publicly available. So I made this sort of um, illogical conclusion. that I, I just ran the marathon and I had a lot of awesome stuff going on in my life. And at the time that I was excited about, so this was sort of culminating at a really awesome time. And I drove to essentially where Hitler and the third right kind of got their sort of thing. That's where this stuff was. Mm-hmm. And nobody spoke English. It was like no internet. And I'm thinking, I'm coming from Berlin. I've been to different parts in the world. And I'm thinking, okay, this is Europe. It's Germany. There's going to be, you know, everybody speaks English and is westernized. And they were westernized, but they were old school Germany. It was like it was probably 70 years ago, kind of middle class. It was like that Euro, Euro trash kind of, you know. And I went into this pizza shop, long story short, and they were two brothers who had linked back up, who had walked in there. And um, one guy was with his wife and maybe two-month-old baby. And the other brother, the only one that spoke English, by the way, was a month clean off of heroin. Mm -hmm. 
and only came to that pizza shop to meet his nephew and hadn't, met his, hadn't seen his brother in two years. And it gets wilder, dude. So he takes, of course, the heroin addict knows where the crazy place is, right? Because don't we all, you know, that's sort of our thing. Like, if there's a place you shouldn't be, the addict, you're going to know how to go there, right? <laughs> so it, and it's, it's a great story. And I'm, I'm sort of recounting it because it's sort of what I'm talking about that. That's a tough, tough subject, right? I'm in Germany. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm speaking English and they're, they're regular German kids who don't speak English. You know, just like I don't speak German, right? I'm assuming everyone's like, like international. And yet we, it, it merged this powerful moment where he took me to my grandfather's prison camp, which was a Nazi prison camp, just like it is with the Holocaust. Yeah. Only it doesn't get looked at like that. He was one of like 10 that survived. He didn't trust the Russians. They liberated it. And I stood there and could see it was dark as night in the woods. And I could see just the forest, like the German, like the World War II things that you hear about. I could see all the way back to where I just drove the highway, the lights of it, of where he would have had to walk to survive to where the allies were, which was on the other side of Berlin. Cause then the Russian, he had to beat the Russians to Berlin or he would have never came back. And I don't exist. And you know, my daughter doesn't, a lot of us don't exist. And so why I bring that up is because for me, I think that a part of that, Whatever drove him to keep walking is in me and is in whoever has come for me. I really believe that. I, it was the only explanation for it that he lived. It didn't make any sense. And then to have a moment like that with these two brothers, they said to me, and it's like, I, I don't want to get emotional about it, but it was, it was intense. It was like these two brothers said that it was the greatest moment of their life, that they had never had, they couldn't believe, and this is weird, right? And I didn't look at it like this. They couldn't believe that this kid in America was from Boston would do all of this just to see a site that his grandfather was at. And because of the moment they were having his brothers, it showed them how important like the family thing was. And it was like really messed up. Yeah. And here's the weirdest part that I didn't think about this till recently. Not only like was that kid in recovery you know, for a month, right? And meets me who wrote a book about <laughs> what? Think about this. I didn't even think about it. Their grandfather and my grandfather probably fought against each other. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. We're the same age. Yeah. They definitely did. And the reason they couldn't be late, like relay that information to me is as I got home, I started getting obsessed with pre-Germany uh, fascism. And I really like this, of course, the pandemic. I've, had, I've got like a master's degree in it. <laughs> and here's like why they wouldn't have known it. Because if, they had, if their grandparents fought in the war, they didn't tell it. They never admitted it. So you wouldn't know. Yeah. So in America... We're like, yeah, my grandfather fought in war, whatever, and they don't have that. So they wouldn't even have known that. Wow. Well, I know. So I know. It's like, so I'm, it's sort of like bringing, like, you ask that question and, and where I'm at in my life. It's, I'm no longer even there with when I wrote the book, the original question of like that concept. I sort of like can't go back there anymore. I don't know what it's like to be strung out anymore. And I had to get that to write that book. Even now, sometimes I'll read it and I'll be like, wow, I've really had a bad life. And I, just like, I, I, I can't explain it. I, I dealt with it and now I've put it behind me. Well, on a side note, I'm curious. Berlin Marathon is known for being a fast race. Mm -hmm. A lot of people go there for, to set records. Yeah. What was, uh, how, what was your time? How'd you do? I didn't set any records. I'll tell you that much. But thanks for the lead in. I, um, <laughs> boy, I work. Yeah, I set a record for myself. I didn't, my personal best was 419 at New York and that one was 4.30, but it was, it was really fast. It was great. What a, what a great time. I mean, it was like, there's a video of me on Instagram where I'm, I'm like right after it 
and I'm just like, I think I even swore. And I just like, I've never looked that good after a marathon. <laughs> I was like ridiculous. I had so much fun. It was, Berlin was cool. I got to add it to me list then. You mentioned that was an, a great experience for you with being around others and that's memorable. What are some other times sharing your story that have been very memorable to you or whether it be someone who had a similar story or someone who you met who then came to you years later and said, hey, you, you influenced me or you inspired me. Have you had any of those experiences? Yeah, right before the pandemic, I met, I had to speak, this is like sort of uh, dark humor. You know, um, I was like, had gone through some different things and recovering, like things were really starting to come through in my life. Um, met my daughter and like things have been, you know, like just a lot of good things in my life. And I was ready to really take the next step. My company was going well, I was settled just, and then the effing pandemic happened. And the funniest thing about it is I wrote the book and it was starting to take off. I was getting speaking gigs. I even had a, a meeting with Brady set up and that's another, that's like seven podcast episodes. Oh, so you don't even go there, dude. Like, <laughs> but like, you just, whatever, right? Hey, good luck, good luck to TB12 this weekend. Good luck to you. Yeah, well, right, exactly. He's probably going to win at that maniac. But like, <laughs> anyhow, so I had my last time I spoke before the pandemic happened, I spoke at a detox, my last detox that I've been in, in that book. And this isn't that big of a deal because I've spoken at a place like this before. So anyway, long story short, we were in there and the different type of, as I told you, tone that I have since I've written that book, I really want to make an impact. I'm not there to come in and just sort of like fulfill my speaking obligations and just trying to put a checkbox because I also know, hey, if I'm bringing it, they're going to want to, I'm going to get hired again. Right. And, or if I just sort of like nail it in, it's not going to matter. So knowing that I've been in those treatment facilities for a long time and knowing that most people go in there and just lecture them, I had this kind of moment when I started to talk and I was going to go into my usual spiel and I'm like, I own a condo, money in the bank and et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, I don't suffer like them anymore. Who am I to come in here and try to inflate myself and know that I can kind of, yeah, I used to be here too. I got sick of being the sort of rags to riches story in recovery. It just meant nothing to me because it was like, so what? Like they've heard this a million times. Some people make it, some people don't. And I started to talk about like what it was like to be in there and some of the stuff that goes on between the men and women and what it really is in law. And, you know, sort of what we started talking about somehow people started openly talking about abuse. Mm-hmm. People were crying, men and women. It was one of the most magical things I've ever been a part of. And you know, it was a gift that people that definitely that I was able to recognize that day that I was able to allow people a room full of people to feel comfortable with one another talking about the most severe stuff that ever happened to them. And the reason they did is because I went first. Yeah. And I learned something that time. That was the most powerful thing I've ever given that. And when I spoke to a prison thing, they gave me a standard ovation. Standard ovation to in it was CEOs, all the prison administration and the prison. And I made point that the CEOs had to get rid of their guns and they have handcuffs if they wanted to listen to me speak. Nobody was going to be in there and we were all going to be the same or it wasn't, I wasn't going to do it. And they did to their credit. They did. And it ended up, it was wild. It was like, talk about chills on top of chills, dude. It was really wild. So I mean, they started clapping. I was embarrassed. I was like, don't clap. Like it was wild, dude. And in that same story, there was this kid. Now I come from this Charlestown and the movie, the town and you know, it's, Crazy Another great movie, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly, whatever. So I'm from that community, so I'm only telling you that to give you the background. So as I'm there, of course, there was a couple people from Charlestown in there. An older guy from Charlestown, his brother was an infamous person. Killed people, Rob, like Rob Bank, infamous. Mm-hmm. This is sort of like the brother who also was in the Fram family, but, you know, 
he he's doing like he ended up getting something where he was going to get released on like some sort of gift he's getting but he basically he's been in there for like 30 years i know i've heard about his brother because he was infamous but i didn't know about him after so when we're doing q a grown man in a prison okay alpha you got to be alpha survival right prison this he says i know who you are i'm from charleston i've been reading about you my whole life he's got tears in his eyes you he's just like you have no idea i send my nephew stuff about you all the time like he's crying i'm like dude this guy is nuts yeah. i'm talking like dude nuts yeah, yeah. like guilty like he's crying like i've heard about him my like these people my whole life and i'm in this prison and he shocked me and that like dude like that i'm not saying i did that I, i'm trying to say, how do i say this it's like i've discovered that in some ways I do have a gift and that doesn't mean, I, I mean, I can't even clean my house. Okay. So let's keep it in perspective. Hey. Right? Right, so like, I'm not trying to say that I'm like, yeah, and your hair is messed up and you get all these other flaws. Yeah, 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 exactly. I've learned that taking that experience, what I've been through with the addiction stuff and then doing the good stuff that some of the people you talk about, I think that is more like my mission is just to yeah. sort of like show that guy in prison, right? beat up old guy in prison. I mean, I had this, this kid dude who came up to me after he was a Hispanic kid. He was jacked. Like, you know, I wouldn't want to be in like, I'll tell you right now, I wouldn't want to be in prison with him. Flat yeah. out, Like, you know, and he was like, can I email you when I get out my P like, you know, I want to start a business and just dude insane in one room. It's like, the ability to connect to strangers and not every person on the planet can do that. And, and you have that. And it's, like you said, it's a gift. It's powerful. It's amazing. You can connect to people all around the world. And it's these emotional experiences that you're having are, are unparalleled. They really are. Yeah, it's true. And I think that that's like, I've sort of like found my sort of like, that's kind of where I got to go to stay on track in life. Mm -hmm. I've got to be doing that. If I'm not doing that, it's just not going to work for me because then everything else is going to like go by the wayside, you know? Well, you're a very introspective person. I know that you are deep thinking. You, you have a lot of self-awareness. So I'm going to hit you with a tough one here. So what did your political run, what did that political run for office, what did that teach you about yourself? Ugh, that I get easily, 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 easily angry towards people and it stays for a very long time. <laughs> a very long time. And you wouldn't even believe some of the stuff I'm still remembering from that campaign <laughs> that I've told people I'm over that I'm actually not. Yeah. Um, no, it is, it's, it's taught me um, to have tough skin thick skin um best thing it gave me was that i could suffer and fall apart in front of everybody and still get up i like that yeah so, and that's the best thing and, and one of the things that I've, i i'm so annoyed with americans who want to act like politics is some sort of thing that either is too annoying for them to talk about or they sort of like don't want to or they're going to like hide what they're doing and i don't think people truly understand that, that whether it's big political systems, interpersonal relationships, running a marathon, it takes work to keep it, all of it. And this sort of entitlement that, and it's not even a political thing. I mean, it's obvious where I stand. I'm a Democrat. It's not even about that. It's this idea that like, it's just supposed to just keep staying there because why not? <laughs> like, and I, I'm sort of blown away that in this sort of really difficult year that we've had, Yes, on some, and there's been a lot of intention towards stuff, but I, I don't know if it was really for the right things or if it was just for the same reason you would have, A, liked someone that got elected or not. It just seems like it's just sort of hitting a dopamine thing. Mm -hmm. And 
like, I don't even know what the, like, what has been going on. The fact that what has been happening in this country and how it correlates to sort of what I try to is sort of like purpose and mental health. I find a very big correlation with that. And I, I really crystallized to me when I saw like my grandfather's thing, because he didn't really have a glorious life. Like he didn't have like, he didn't come home and like live like Brad Pitt. Like he went and had kids and worked a job and like died at the age of 81 with his family around him, which was the best thing about him. But it wasn't like, you know, and, and we named a street after him like five years ago and that was pomp and sort but it, it, my point being is that it's, he, he was in a Nazi prison camp and, you know, and because of that, we're, you know, putting crazy stuff on Twitter and, you know, I'm telling you, that wouldn't have worked under the emperor of Japan or Adolf Hitler. You wouldn't be able to go on Twitter and just say obnoxious stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I know that it's a bigger correlation. It's just, I, I worry sometimes that because we're losing our personal reason to do things that it's like, it, it sort of correlates to these bigger stuff. I really do, but yeah. sort of off topic. You're someone who's incredibly active, pretty goal setting for the future. So what are, what are, what are you working on next? What's, what are your big plans? Let's say utopically and when in a utopic situation, world gets back to normal. What are the big plans you have? What's next for you? 2021. Um, well, I'm working on my company. I have a, a cannabis dispensary that I'm working on. Um, that's been a, really difficult community process. So it's more about staying on the grind with that. Mm-hmm. And then once we complete that, we get our permit, which should happen February or March, which is coming up. Not this March now, not February. See now I'm mad again. <laughs> I'm only kidding. It was supposed to be February. We got pushed back. Uh, once we get that settled, I plan to um, write another book. So right. that's definitely on the agenda and I would have began doing it now, but I didn't want to write it in a frantic manner. I, I really was proud of the work I did with Sharp. Be authentic, I was yeah. Very proud yeah. of it. And I was only able to write a book like that because I gave it all that I had. And I wouldn't want to just half out something and put it out there with my name on it. So do we have any future runs and marathons on the docket? Who left, man? If the world ever opens again, I got Tokyo and London and then I I'm gonna be a member of the uh sixth uh, Abbott uh, marathon club. I'm gonna be in that thing with the like 1,500 people or something. Were you like signed that. up for London last year? No. Okay. So I have London. So London and Tokyo is because I've had, they're just too difficult to get into. And so yeah, I got right. into, I did Berlin, Chicago back to back this past year. So I had Boston during the, uh, the bombing. I didn't finish because of that. I finished the year after. And then I had New York and then Berlin, Chicago. Now we got Tokyo and London. So those two got to be the goal. So. Maybe the toughest question. Who's your personal Boston sports Mount Rushmore? Mm, Brady, easy. Okay. Bill Russell. Okay. Bird. Or okay. That's easy. If I had to, the, the problem with the Boston thing, because there's a lot of them, um, if, you had, if you could put five on, I hate If you, you can't, you got to pick four. But if you had, I'd have, I'd try to find Ortiz because of the, he got the three rings. And yeah. that, I'd put him there before I put Ted Williams. Let's put it that way. I like to ask people that question, uh, all the different cities, and usually pretty difficult, but Boston, they've had a lot of good athletes, but it's actually one of the easier choices because those four that you mentioned are, yeah. are in their own stratosphere. So, like, uh, and, and Bill Russell, too. I mean, just historically, I mean, come on. Bill Ru- I mean, 11 rings, first, is preposterous. Preposterous. To the point where people, when they mention it, they try to, like, downplay it, like, as if, well, there was no one there. I would actually make the case actually wrong. Six teams means that all the best players are all on the six teams. That's true. You know, so anyway, but Bill, and then just, you know, as an African-American and what, you know, being in a city like Boston at a time in the 1960s, what an amazing legacy that man has. So he, 
he should be there anyway. And then you add that, it's just, you know, and he always did it with, um, he didn't do it with um, Venom. It's hard to explain. No, I, I get you. I mean, even today he posted on Twitter, today he posted that he got his vaccine. And he was He's joking proud. about it. He was joking because he said they, they were showing like a clip of all the shots that he blocked. And he goes, that's one shot I'm not blocking the vaccine. It's like, yeah. funny. you're 80 years old and you're still funny. I love it. Yeah, he's the best. I've met him. Met him with Menino. Very down-to-earth guy. Very, I uh, had a southern um, dialect, it seemed to me. Okay. Kind of a gentleness to him. What he lives out in Seattle, I think, now. That would make sense. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It was a pleasure to meet you. I really enjoyed this. This was wow. awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you a line next time I drop in on Boston. Boston's my favorite, my favorite American city. It was a pleasure. I, honest, honestly, thank you for having me. Thank you, man. All right. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Much appreciation to Jack. Be sure to follow him on social media and pick up Sharp Needle when you can. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento. <laughs>